So I've been having such a blast studying through the book of Revelation. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And I'm excited to teach to you some of the things I'm learning. But it's been difficult, too, because the book of Revelation is just so, there's so much there. You know, you can get into one verse, and you can do a whole sermon on one verse. Some of the verses you can do two or three sermons on. So I'm trying to weigh out how much detail to give you. So if you feel like I'm overfeeding you, you know, just take notes and go home and chew on it later. Just call it leftovers. I hope not to overwhelm you but to keep it well-balanced. I want to start off with just something real simple. The book is called Revelation, uh, not Revelations, which people often call it. It's the book of Revelation. The word Revelation means to uncover something, reveal something, expose something that was hidden. So what is it that the book exposes? What does it reveal? I came up with a list. And just right off the top of my head, I came up with seven things. Now, there may be more. You could probably come up with some more. But here's my list of seven. Seven things revealed in the book of Revelation. Number one, the future, of course. Everybody knows that one. The future is revealed. Heaven is revealed. It's like the curtain is pulled back, and we get the best glimpse in the Bible of what heaven looks like. God the Father is revealed. God the Holy Spirit is revealed. God the Son is revealed. Man's sin is revealed, and God's wrath is revealed. So in a sense, most of our lessons from this point forward are going to be looking at one of those things. I don't have the time this morning to look at all seven, but we are going to look at some of this this morning. And it's just in two verses, it's going to take most of our attention. Last week, we looked at verses one through three. Today, we're going to look at verses 4 through 5. John, to the seven congregations in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Messiah Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. All right, so the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is how God's unity is revealed, uh, his triunity, the trinity. It says, him who is and who was. So the letter starts off saying, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him. So we know the letter comes from God, and we talked about that last time. But then it says, him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. So it says it's from God, but then it immediately says it's from him who was, who is, who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. So who are these three beings that it says the book of Revelation is from when just a minute ago it said it was from God? Well, obviously this is still God. It's explaining to us, it's revealing God to us in a different and unique way. Verse 4 says, him who is and who was and who is to come. In a future lesson in a week or two, I'm going to talk to you about Jewish hermeneutics. There's a way that the Jewish rabbis have interpreted scripture over the years that's kind of different than what we do, and I'll teach you a little bit about that. But one of the things they do is they teach through hints or through subtlety. 
they make a statement and you're supposed to come up with the answer by yourself instead of them just telling you the answer. And you'll notice that, you know, it's, it's a Jewish way of communicating, even to this very day. You might ask a Jewish pe person a question, and they won't give you a straight answer. It's not because they're trying to be tricky or evasive. It's just a Jewish way of communicating. We like to give hints instead of just out and out say it. And then on the other hand, sometimes we're just in your face. We seem to go a little to the extremes there. So verse 4 doesn't say it's from God. It says it's from him who is and who was and who is to come. And you should know that's God. We shouldn't have to argue with you that that's God. Shouldn't even have to prove to you that that's God. You should know that. But if you're not in the in group, if you're not familiar with Jewish theology or Christian theology now, this is going to be confusing to you. And that's part of the point. The book of Revelation is a mystery in part so that those in the know can know more, and those who aren't in the know can scratch their heads and say, I don't know what this is. It's kind of written in code. But if you know God and you know the scriptures, a lot of the code disappears. You know that God is him who is and who was and who is to come. And the Jewish audience this was written to, and the Messianic audience, the Christian community, they knew this was God. Isaiah 44.6 would be an example. This is what Isaiah 44.6 says. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer. The Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. And apart from me, there is no God. So anybody who's read the scriptures knows God already calls himself this. So this is one way of subtly hinting that the author of the book is God. God the Father, specifically, is the one who is and was and is to come. Then it says also in verse 4, Oh, by the way, and the point here is God's eternal. That's what it means. Him who is and was who is to come. It's kind of like when Moses was at the burning bush and God said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Who should I say sent me? I am has sent you. That word I am is a verb that just meant is the one who always is, who is and who was and who is to come. It's a verb that covers all bases. So this is another way of saying the same thing in Isaiah, the same thing in Exodus. Then it says in verse 4 about the Holy Spirit, it says, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now again, this is mystery talk. This isn't direct data. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit. It says the seven spirits before his throne. If you know scripture, you're immediately going to think the Holy Spirit. Back to the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 4. Listen. So the prophet Zechariah is having a vision. The vision is explained, and it's written down, and people have been reading it for thousands of years. Here's the vision. The angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man who is wakened from his sleep. And he asked me, what do you see? And I said, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it. This is known as a menorah. With seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I asked the angel who talked to me, what are these, sir? And he answered, don't you know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So Zechariah has this vision. And he sees a seven-branch candlestick. 
in the vision with two pipes leading to it from different olive trees. Remember, the way you lit a lamp back in those days was with olive oil. So the idea is that these are piped right to the tree. This light never goes out. It's eternal. But when he sees it, he doesn't understand. Why am I seeing a lamp piped into an olive tree? So he asks the angel, what's this mean? And the angel looks at him and says, you don't know? It's like the angel is incredulous that Zechariah, the prophet, the man of God, doesn't know what's so obvious to the angel. I can almost see the angel doing this. This is your prophet? They don't know anything. People, humans, uh. All right, let me explain it to you. Now, I'm being silly. I'm sure the angel was very respectful, but he was shocked that Zachariah didn't know. Kind of like you'd be shocked if somebody said, George Washington, who's that? Or television, what's a television? You don't know? No, would you explain it to me? Well, yeah. Then you gotta think a minute on how to explain it. It's, it's a box that you can see moving pictures on. Oh, okay. Like a cardboard box? No, no, no. What is this? This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Oh, so somehow this seven-branch light represents God's spirit. Okay, gotcha. Well, thank you, Zechariah. You may not have understood, but it sure helped me understand the book of Revelation better. So when I read, and from the seven spirits before his throne, boom. I know he's talking about the, the eternal Holy Spirit because of Zechariah chapter 4. Then it goes over and talks about Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 5. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, you may not have understood the first, the last, he who is, who was, and who is to come. And you may not have understood the seven spirits before his throne. But I bet you almost everybody understands why Jesus is called these things. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. But Messiah being the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Lord of lords and the king of kings, isn't first mentioned here. Just like the others, it's a hint on something that was previously known. And for that, I'll read to you Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Here's what it says. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Hey, amen, brother. So, John gets this vision. And in this vision, he's ushered into heaven, and we get a glimpse. And he hears about the one who is and who was and who is to come. And he gets a vision of seven spirits before his throne. And then he hears about the firstborn from the dead, the rulers of the kings of the earth. So when this book or this letter got to the seven churches, and when it got to us, we understand exactly what he's talking about. But if it fell into the hands of, say, a Roman enemy of the gospel, and they started to read it, they'd have no clue what this was about, and they would need somebody to explain it to them. Well, after God is introduced as the giver of this revelation, the focus turns more to Jesus. Verse 5, to him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood. There's not much I can say about this. This is the basic gospel that you all know. Jesus loves us, and he died for our sins, and that's how he freed us from our sins. Then it says something else he does for us in verse 6. This might be new to you. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and Father, his God and Father. Now, the New International Version says kingdom and priests. The King James Version says he has made us kings and priests. So are we a kingdom of priests, or or are we a kingdom and priests, or are we kings and priests? Different translations put it different ways. But that doesn't bother me, because all three are right. He has made us a kingdom. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and we're a whole new community of people. He has made us priests. You may not realize this, but if you follow Jesus, you're a priest. Finally, women get to be priests. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. You are a priest on this planet. You intercede for people. You pray for your loved ones that they might get saved. That's the work of a priest. You pray that they might be healed from their sicknesses. That's the work of a priest. You pray that this world might get straightened out. That's the work of a priest. So he has made us a kingdom of priests. The only question is, has he made us kings? There's not a lot of places in the Bible where you can go where God says, my people will become kings. And so that's why I think some of them translated it kingdom of priests instead of kings and priests. But you think about it, as you read through Revelation and through the epistles, believers are given crowns. Yes. And we're said that we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Well, if he's the king of kings, who are the other kings that he's king of? So I do believe that in the eternal, uh, in the millennial kingdom, we, some of us will be kings, if not all of us. And he will be our king. So Revelation introduces us to its source. It says, this is from God. And then it talks to us about the Trinity. And then the focus turns to Jesus, as is often the case in the Bible. What he does for us, he loves us. He died for our sins and rose again to free us from our sins. He makes us kings and priests in his service. And then it tells us about something he's going to do that he hasn't done yet. And it's in verse 7. Look, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So what's, what's he going to do for us there, Steve? He's coming back for us. That's what he's going to do for us. He promised he would. Do you remember that? He promised more than once. Listen, this is my favorite return promise. It's from John chapter 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. This version says, trust in God, trust also in me. The one I memorized says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. Jesus says he's coming back. Do you believe that? Do you? Do you really? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. You still believe it? Boy, you guys are faithful. You really believe. He's taken, a, he's taken his sweet time, though, hasn't he? 2,000 years. Well, there's a couple ways of looking at that. First of all, it hasn't been 2,000 years for you. You're only 30 years old. 
So from generation to generation, it's been the same amount of time for everybody waiting. So yeah, you can say, oh, it's been 2,000 years. Not for you, it hasn't. So don't really act like, oh, wow, you've been putting it off so long, like I act. <laughs> God, right, 2,000 years. No, for me, it's just been about 50 years. That, that's still a long time, though. But then I think about God's pattern in the scripture. Abraham, you're going to have a child through Sarah. I'm 75. It's a little late for that. I should have had that child about 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Uh, you're going to have a son. Okay. 76, 77, 78, 79. I'm 80 now. You ready to give me that son you promised? 81, 82, 83, 84, 85. How's your faith, Abraham? You're 85 years old. I said you're going to have a son. Do you believe me? 86, 87, 88, 89. Nine. Man's pushing 100 when he has his firstborn son. Sometimes God puts things off. He told Adam and Eve, I'm going to send a Messiah. That took a while. We went from Adam, Tower of Babel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 patriarchs, the prophets, the priests, the kings. Finally, Jesus comes. And now Jesus says he's coming back. Well, it took him, what, 5,000 years to come the first time, 4,000 years to come the first time? I don't know. Second 2,000 years for the second time? Sometimes in Scripture, he tells us exactly when he's going to do things. Exactly when. And other times, he just says, it's not for you to know the day or the hour, which just means wait, and it'll happen when he's ready. So I do also believe he's coming back. And the Scriptures give us, in what we just read, three specific details about his return, exactly how his return is going to come about. I'll read that to you, and then I'll tell you the significance of why those details are important. So, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, the first detail about his return. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Okay, look, he's coming with the clouds. When he comes, you'll be able to see it, and it'll be coming, he'll be coming in the clouds. So that means if right now somebody poofs right here and says, I'm the Messiah, you might be inclined to believe it because of the miracle of the instant appearance. But I'm like, no, you're not the Messiah. Bow down before me. Now you're a phony. He said he's coming back in the clouds. See any clouds? I don't see any clouds. You're a phony. Get out of here. If he says, watch, I'll turn water into wine. Yeah, 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 that's a good trick. Get out of here. See, Steve, that's disrespectful. No, it's not disrespectful. He said he's coming in the clouds. Anybody who comes any other way is not him. Daniel chapter 7 also says he's coming in the clouds. In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days, the ancient of days, him who is and who was and who is to come. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him because he's king of kings and lord of lords. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. When Jesus comes back, he's coming with the clouds, just like it says in Revelation, just like it says in Daniel, and just like it says in the book of Acts. Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He was taken up before their very eyes. So, Jesus is crucified. He's died. He dies. On the third day, he raises from the dead. 
Then he appears to his disciples and he teaches them for 40 days. Then he meets up with them at the Mount of Olives and he's talking to them and says, I have to go now. And he starts to elevate. I mean, right in front of their eyes, he starts to ascend up into heaven. Could you imagine how weird that must have been? You're just talking to somebody and they just start to float up. That had to be an interesting sight. And then, I mean, how high did he go and how small did he get? You ever release a balloon and watch it? We're fascinated with things that float. I don't know why. How many of you in your adult age look at balloons that go up and see how long you can see them? Yeah, almost all of us. So you know you're going to do that if a man goes up. You see him? Well, he's little, but I, I think I see him right over there. Is that him? No, no. Yeah, that's him. That oh, man, he went behind a cloud. That's exactly what happened. Listen. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So he floated up. He floated. He's going to float down. He went up into a cloud. He's coming back into a cloud at least three times. The Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back, he's coming back in the clouds. Okay, so why is this important? For at least two reasons. When Acts, Daniel, and Revelation all say the same thing about a minor detail about Jesus, it shows us the unity of the Bible. That means the book of Daniel that was written like 700 B.C., different author, different country. And then 700 years later, or 800 years later, the book of Acts is written, and it says the same thing, different authors, different country. And then the book of Revelation is written by a different author, also in a different country, a hundred years later, well, maybe 50 years after Acts, the Bible is a whole. Different human authors, one divine author, same little details that we wouldn't even think are important are repeated in inconspicuous ways. And then you start adding them up and you say, ah, this must be important. It's mentioned at least three times. Why is it important to tell us Jesus is coming back with the clouds? Well, in order to answer that question with you, I want to lead you to the next point. The first point is, he's coming with the clouds. The second point is, every eye will see him. Verse 7 says, look, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Here's why it's important. This is based on something Jesus warned his disciples about way back in Matthew 24. So he's teaching his disciples about his return and listen to what he says. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Poof, I'm the Messiah. No, you're not. Get out of here. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, don't go there. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. When Jesus comes back, Craig's not going to call me up and say, hey, guess what? Jesus came back. No, he didn't. No, no, really. I saw the wounds in his hands. You're following a deceiver. He tricked you. No, it's really Jesus. He turned water into wine. It's not Jesus. Well, how do you know? 
Because the Bible says when he comes back, every eye will see him. He's coming in the clouds of heaven, and like the lightning from the east to the west, it's going to be that obvious. Everybody on the planet's going to see him come back. It's not going to be a secret. You're not going to be able to miss it. So if somebody says in the newspaper there's a Messiah off in the desert somewhere, I don't care what he's doing. He could be raising people from the dead like pollywogs from a pond. Don't believe it. He's a phony. He's not the real deal. Jesus told us how to identify the real deal. So why is this important? Because the Antichrist is coming, and false prophets are coming, and they will deceive people. You know, if there was one verse from the Bible, other than for God so loved the world, that I wanted to make available to people in the end days, it'd be that verse, the one about how not to be deceived. Because they're going to come, and they're going to deceive many people, saying that they're Jesus, they're, they're the Messiah. There's already some guys out there claiming to be the Messiah. Right now, right now, they claim to be the Messiah. One that cracks me up the most, I don't even know if he's still alive, is the so-called Reverend Sun Myung Moon. He's Asian. Scripture said this same Jesus will come back. I know Jesus wasn't an Asian. So, and I know Moon didn't come in the clouds. I know he wasn't born in Bethlehem. His hands aren't pierced. No, he's not the Messiah. He's deceived millions of people without even doing miracles. Imagine if these guys start doing miracles, how deceptive they will be. That's why it's important. Three details about the manner of the second coming of Jesus. Number one, he's coming with the clouds. Number two, every eye will see him. One more that I want to point out, and it's in verse 7. This is more theological than helpful for those who might be here at that time. It says, look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be mourning. I thought when Jesus comes back, there'd be joy. Hey, look, the Messiah's back. All our problems are over. He's going to set up his kingdom. Peace on earth, goodwill towards man. Finally. Well, I think there's going to be joy when Jesus comes back too. So now I know there's going to be joy and mourning, but this is emphasizing the mourning. Why will there be mourning when Jesus comes back? Why will people be grieving? You would think the coming of the Messiah would be awesome, exciting. Well, before I try to answer that for you, I want to let you know it's prophesied, not just in Revelation 1-7. Revelation 1-7 is pretty much going back to the prophet Zechariah. And we were already at Zechariah, for the vision of the seven lights, the seven candles. Here's what Zechariah says about this morning. Chapter 12, verses 8 through 11. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. Now David who killed Goliath. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. And the next several verses tell you which tribes are mourning by name. A lot of detail given to a moment of mourning. So why is it that when Jesus comes back, there's going to be mourning? 
Part of the hint here is in Zechariah. It says, I will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And one of the ways he's going to do this is by making the Israelis mighty warriors like David and the angel of the Lord. And then in verse 9 it says, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This is going to be after the battle of Armageddon. We've had seven years up to this point of tribulation where God is pouring out plagues and demons are attacking people and the world is just falling apart and fresh water is being turned into blood and the stars from the sky are falling and the universe is trembling. Everybody's freaking out. People are going to be dying of heart attacks. It's going to be that scary. And then Jesus comes back. Why the mourning? Well, I think people are going to be mourning the loss of what just transpired. You know, there's going to be millions and millions and millions of deaths. When I came to Jesus, I said a prayer, and I thanked him for saving me. And I found a local church, and I went to a worship service. And next thing I know, I'm on my knees in front of the stairs sobbing during one of the worship songs. I don't know. I don't know why. Was it just the relief of the sins being gone? Was it the broken spirit that submitted itself to Jesus? Was it the joy of having a new faith and an eternal life and a relationship with God? I don't know. I've never experienced anything like that before or since. But I understand if Jesus is going to be there personally, how people can be crying. Furthermore, who's Jesus coming back to? Those of us who already believed in him were with him in heaven already. So that means the whole generation of people were the people who initially rejected him. Some of them will have become believers by the time he comes back, probably all of them. And they're going to regret the decisions they made and the way they treated his prophets, the way they treated him. So there's going to be joy, there's going to be mourning. Mourning over the loss of loved ones, the horror of the wars, the fact that we had rejected Jesus, the fact that it was our fault he was crucified. God goes to great lengths to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. He's going to return whenever he's ready, whether the world's ready for him or not. I can tell you, we won't be. Today, though, right now, people have a choice to be ready. We have a choice to make. We can be on the welcoming committee when Jesus comes back. Or we could be the ones he's coming to vanquish. We have to choose sides. It's all about allegiances. We're used to, right now, as Americans, we could just float. We don't have the choose between good and evil for the most part. We have one, one king, one president. We have a Congress. We've got a we don't have, like, the prince of darkness ruling from one state and the prince of light ruling from another state, and then we have, like, the days of the Civil War. We don't have that right now. But that's really what we do have. We've got the prince of light, Jesus, and the prince of darkness, Satan, and we have to choose sides. And we're, like, bobbing and weaving, not picking sides. There are no fence-sitting sitters with God. Imagine this scenario just to help you understand what I'm trying to communicate. Um, if I jump down there, it's choosing Jesus. Well, let me think about it. You know, that's, that's not a bad jump. I, I can make that. And if jumping down there is going to get me to heaven, why wouldn't I jump down there? I, I could do that. Maybe I will do that. That's a pretty good idea. 
but I'm not doing it while I'm thinking about doing it. So we often think, well, I haven't choose, chosen Jesus or the devil. Yes, you have. A non-decision is a decision. And so for those who have not yet chosen Jesus, by default, they've chosen not Jesus. And so I'd like to urge you to make the choice to walk with Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. And he will bring you into paradise when that time is right. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, I remember those days before I chose Jesus. It was a hard decision to make. But thank you for speaking to my heart and helping me choose right. And I know there's people who are listening to me now who haven't made that decision. But I want to encourage them to do so. And I pray you would speak to their hearts too and help them to choose right. <laughs> to choose life. To choose that which is good for them. To choose joy over sorrow. Hope over hopelessness, light over darkness, eternal life over internal damnation. Open our eyes, Lord, for we want to see Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.